Before I begin this podcast, I want to encourage you to support independent black media. Portrayals of our people in mass media often come off with a spirit of either disinterest or seem to be disingenuous. It's not enough for outlets such as this one to be professional, but also passionate because the issues that we talk about here are very personal and specific to black people. You can make a one-time donation to the Making a Difference show via Cash App at dollar sign making M-A-K-I-N a difference show, or you could become a month-to-month supporter of the Making a Difference show through Patreon by going to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash making M-A-K-I-N a difference show. Thank you for your support and welcome to Making a Difference. Um, to be a Negro, to be a Negro in this country, and to be um, relatively conscious, is to be in a state of rage, almost, almost all of the time. You wonder why I spit the truth, but not to make no dope. To make a difference. Welcome to Making a Difference. I'm your host, Ken Macon. Uh, we have a amazing episode. I would say, I'll just go ahead and say it, the most important episode that we don't on Making a Difference ever. The conversation that you're going to hear very shortly is a dialogue that I uh, had a good chance to have with Dr. William Sandy Darity Jr. and Kirsten Mullen. And if you don't know who they are, they are, for starters, husband and wife, and they are the authors of From Here to Equality, which is a great, great book that lays out a plan for reparations for black Americans in the 21st century. I would encourage you very strongly to get this book. Uh, you can go you can actually uh, read a preview of it uh, on Google. But of course, once you read the I think there's a 40 page preview or so, once you read it, you're going to want to buy the book. So I and I actually have in my hand right now a uh, hard cover copy of the book. At any rate, I had a chance to sit down uh, with Dr. Darity and uh, Mrs. Mullen. We talked uh, for about an hour uh, just about reparations. And uh, we had a chance to you know, tie the importance of reparations with what we're seeing uh, in terms of this pandemic, in terms of COVID-19 and how it's really uh, just reemphasizing and laying bare uh, just some of the unique challenges that we face as African-Americans. This conversation would not have happened without a uh, childhood friend of mine and a brother, just a true friend of the show, Jerome Ferguson. Jerome is also a part of this dialogue. And I'm actually uh, going to let Jerome kind of bring this thing in because he uh, said something that was so powerful. And in many ways, it not only outlines the destiny of uh, this podcast and this episode, but it really, uh, I think, does this has that same energy for this particular book. So I really I really hope you guys enjoy this episode. There's no doubt in my mind that you will. Uh, you're listening to Making a Difference. Ms. Mullen, Dr. Darity, what you guys have done is consolidated um, uh, history as well as a solutions package into one living and breathing organism, in my opinion. So what's going to happen with this book, it, this is what I foresee anyway, is you people are going to get this book, they're going to read it, and they're going to challenge politicians and activists all across the political spectrum and say, okay, there's no more excuses. We, you can't say that, okay, what are we going to do or how are we going to do it? No, 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 no. Here it is right here. Welcome to Making a Difference. I'm your host, Ken Macon. Man, I'm just, I'm so excited to be in this place right now and having this conversation. I'm here with the co-authors of From Here to Equality. And if you all are familiar with the podcast, we talk so much about, you know, black concerns and one of those concerns and perspectives is about reparations and what it means, not just from a financial standpoint, but also from a historical standpoint. And so I'm so glad to have with us here today, again, the authors of From Here to Equality, really just, you know, some of the foremost minds, you know, in the conversation about reparations. I'm here with Dr. William Sandy Darity, and I'm also here, we're also here with Kirsten Mullen. How are you guys doing today? so glad to have you all on the show. I'll be remiss if I didn't introduce my friend of, man, almost 30 years. and Since third grade. <laughs> and, you know, uh, 
the man who's responsible for putting this conversation together. He's uh, one of the uh, one of the political consultants for the Black Voters Guide. We did uh, actually uh, preceded the South Carolina primary uh, doting husband and father of two kids. Uh, here with Jerome Ferguson. Jerome, so glad to have you on the show, man. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited and to um, Dr. Darity and, and Miss Mullen. I'm I'm a fan of your work. You know, um, I first realized um, how much of a contribution you all were making when I started just doing some independent research and came across some articles that um, Dr. Darity had wrote. So I've been a fan ever since, and I'm just looking forward to listening to this discussion. Thank you. That's great. Thanks. We're going to go ahead and jump right into the discussion. I want to ask each of you, in your own words, why did you decide to write this book? I think that, that this was a labor of love, that we have been on a mission for a long time to address the fact that uh, black Americans have been consistently subjugated, uh, even when we accomplish major things. Many of those accomplishments are stolen from us. Uh, thinking in particular of the uh, the development of some some prosperous communities with a significant local business infrastructure, uh, educational institutions that were under the control of black folks. Uh, in many instances where these kinds of communities were developed under. Uh, the orbit of segregation. They were literally raised to the ground with uh, massive uh, white terror acts uh, killing blacks as well as destroying black property or appropriating the black property. So that to the extent that this is something that is a sustained pattern in the United States, there needs to be redress. And uh, we've, we've committed ourselves to trying to make sure that we could try to develop the most systematic case that we possibly could conceive of for why reparations should be provided to black American descendants of U.S. slavery and uh, for how you might do it. Uh, so, so those are the two tasks. But it, it emerges out of a, a deep conviction that this is the right thing to do, that this is the just thing to do. So, you know, my own involvement with the movement, I guess, grown over the years. You know, I think about, you know, just stories that passed down in my family and also, you know, my own family's way of thinking about our history. Uh, more than 30 years ago, we traveled to Florence, Alabama in Lauderdale County to introduce our firstborn, uh, you know, then an infant to my paternal grandparents. And my grandfather, Ms. Mullen, you know, raised the baby in the air above his head uh, when we presented him and said proudly, the fifth generation. Uh, you know, and it took me, you know, a moment to understand the significance of his declaration. Um, you know, Aiden, his first great-grandchild, was born in the fifth generation since our ancestors had been enslaved in northwestern Alabama. Uh, you know, later I would learn about the 18 black men and women who had been lynched in Lauderdale County and the three adjoining counties between 1877 and 1943. Uh, I think three in Lauderdale, three in Clover, I'm sorry, eight in Clover County, five in Limestone, and two in Lawrence. Um, you know, but you know, we considered, and I considered attending the World Conference Against Racism in 2001 in Durban, South Africa. And then, you know, we were outraged when that same year, conservative writer David Horowitz um, purchased ads in, I think, 28 elite university newspapers stating his arguments against reparations. You know, somehow, bizarrely, Horowitz argues that, you know, blacks owed a debt to white American Christian abolitionists for pushing for the end of the institution when had blacks not been enslaved in the U.S. in the first place, this would not have been an issue. So, you know, um, you know, I, I think there are just a lot of things kind of in the cauldron. Um, you know, witnessing uh, my own community of, you know, working class black folks who were smart and who were industrious and who were so incredibly hardworking, but, you know, had you know, did not have what they deserved to show for all of that work. 
and, and just wondering, you know, even as a child, you know, what's, what's wrong with this picture? You know, it just didn't make sense to me. And so I think, you know, these are some questions that have been kind of, you know, in my, in my head for a long time, but having the structure, you know, of history to kind of evaluate, you know, this, this sort of lived experience really made a difference, really made a difference for me. I can just imagine, you know, so much of this and, and I would encourage everybody to purchase the book. I had just got the phone with my mom before I talked with you guys. And I said, well, mom, I'm going to purchase the book. I want you to purchase the book. But right for in the meantime, you can look at, I think there's a preview on Google, like the first 45 pages. And, you know, she's starting to look over that. And it's just, it's so gripping. It's so compelling. I'm saying that to say that as much uh, dedication and attention to detail that there is with the book in terms of research and statistics and different things like that, there's also an emotional aspect that uh, Ms. Mullen, you are alluding to. And I think that among other reasons is what makes the book so powerful. I want to, I want to piggyback off of that. And I want to ask because so much of this is about political imagination, I believe. And I want to ask you all, how will this book be able to change the political imagination of black people? And I think just Americans overall in a way that helps people understand the feasibility of and the responsibility for reparations. I would like to start by piggybacking off of your observation about the emotional content of the book. This is a book that was quite self-consciously intended to be a work of advocacy. It is not, we're, we're, we make no pretense at being uh, detached observers in crafting this book. And so there is a passion that underlies the way in which we attempted to write it. We're hoping that the public at large, in reading it, will begin to say that there's a host of things that they previously believed that aren't really correct. Uh, That the kind of evidence and data, the historical record that we present, subverts a host of beliefs that people have customarily held. And that in changing or reversing their beliefs, they come to recognize the, uh, the justice that is embedded in a, a project of reparations for uh, black American descendants of, of American slavery. You know, I feel very strongly that this is a very important moment that the nation finds itself in. Um, you know, these are ideas that have been percolating for a very long time. You know, black people have been trying to, uh, you know, black descendants of slaves have been trying to, you know, obtain reparations, you know, from the moment, let me, let me back up and say, you know, black folks who were kidnapped into slavery have been trying to uh, obtain reparations uh, from the moment they got here. You know, we were the first abolitionists, you know, taking the matter into our own hands and, you know, walking away, running away uh, from these plantation sites, from folks who claim to own us. And, you know, our work is part of a, a large conversation uh, that began not with us. Um, you know, I think the idea is that you, you know, you put your shoulder to the wheel, you do, you do what you can, uh, but knowing that you're part of that is much larger than yourselves. Um, you know, some of us are aware of the work of people like Queen Aubrey Moore, uh, but also Mary Frances Berry, who was a, she was our rock star, uh, was an academic scholar who has done research on Cali House and the work that she did previous century uh, in an attempt to obtain pension funds for um, blacks who were who had been enslaved and who fought in the Civil War. Um, but this is a, it's a long struggle. And, um, you know, I, we hope that it will reach, uh, a, you know, a point where the movement becomes real. I mean, the movement is real, but where the, where the you know, the, the plan of reparations becomes real and we can, you know, see, uh, you know, what that will look like. I mean, we're, we are, I think, are as, as eager and as excited uh, as, as, as others to see what the country will do, what ultimately um, the commitment will be to black American descendants of uh, the enslaved of the U.S. Yeah, I'd just like to add that the current crisis, the, uh, the COVID-19 crisis, 
um, just magnifies the importance of adopting a reparations program. I'm thinking in particular of the growing evidence we have of the higher rates of mortality from the disease that's, uh, that are in, in, that's occurring in the black community. Uh, I think when in the state of Louisiana, their estimate is that 70% of the deaths are uh, among black folk, when black folk are about 32% of the state's population. Um, and uh, we think that one of the reasons that excess mortality is taking place is because of the historical, the, the horrific historical trajectory of racial injustice in the United States, which has led blacks to have uh, worse health outcomes, but also to have significantly fewer resources. So we give uh, particular emphasis to the fact that black Americans are 13% of the U.S. population, but hold only 2.6% of the nation's wealth and that that translates into uh, an $800,000 differential on average between black and white households uh, with respect to net worth. Uh, that differential is so enormous that it has really, really adverse effects on uh, the health position of black Americans. And uh, that means that with the current pandemic, Black Americans are more susceptible to contracting the disease, but also succumbing to the disease. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we ponder is, you know, what would the position of Black Americans be today if our ancestors had received 40 acres uh, in land grants at the end of the Civil War? Uh, if we had been allowed both to uh, receive those lands uh, those properties, and also to have citizen rights, you know, so that we could, you know, represent ourselves in court, uh, so we could, could vote, um, and if those, if our, if our forebears had been able to develop those properties, to pass them down, um, how different would things be today? Um, how many of us would be uh, overrepresented in, you know, what Sandy has called uh, these sort of missionary uh, occupations, the helping positions of, you know, um, nurses aides and uh, child care workers and elder care workers. Uh, we are over Tran transportation, transportation workers, workers. Um, and the folks who are, you know, probably going to be the first line of folks who are remanded to get back into the workforce, uh, even though we're not certain that uh, the kind of, of safety precautions will be in place for them to do their jobs, um, you know, in a way that is not threatening to them. Um, you know, if, if we had had these resources and been able to pass them down from generation to generation, how might we uh, be able to, how might we have been able to protect ourselves in this moment? That's compelling, and it's, uh, Jerome and I were laughing because, you know, we're, you know, we have some obviously have some questions that we want to ask you, and so Dr. Darity apparently, uh, he's a, he's a psychic too, right? Because <laughs> that literally was the next question, right? When you, when you brought up the um, fact about the how the COVID nineteen pandemic is affecting everything, it literally was the next question on um, Kitten's uh, documentation here. So shout out to you for being a psychic as well. Thank you. <laughs> I got my. Uh... <laughs> we'll be back after these messages. My name is Lauren Macon, and you are listening to Making a Difference with my handsome husband, Ken Macon. This is Donald Doe and Michael Doe with Family Financial Consultants. Do you need help with Medicare, with affordable mortgage and life insurance, building an estate for your child? We provide these types of services for you and much more. As independent insurance brokers, we take pride in coming into people's homes and not only saving them money, but changing their lives. Imagine only paying a few dollars for your medicine instead of hundreds, or cutting the cost of your insurance premiums. Our goal is to provide affordable policies tailored to your individual needs. Give us a call at 803-293-8915 or 706-503-3933. 
Family Financial Consultants, LLC, located at 412 Edgefield Road in North Augusta, South Carolina. Agents work for companies, but a broker works for you. Adversity, challenges, and mediocrity are a part of any business or organization. What separates a good business or organization from a great one is how staff and members work together to reach common goals and to keep their eyes on the prize. I'm Janice Allen Jackson with Janice Allen Jackson & Associates, LLC, and there is a better way for you to reach your goals. Our mission is to enhance the effectiveness of organizations by equipping leaders to better serve their customers, employees, and the larger community. While many consultants provide the same solutions to each client, we tailor our approach to you. We provide leadership-based speaking services, strategic planning, problem solving, and other organizational development services to government, business, religious, and nonprofit organizations. In business, it's important to have a leg up on the competition. With any organization, being on one accord and identifying why you aren't achieving what you want is crucial. We specialize in excellence, so we work hard to understand your needs and work with your organization to achieve and meet those needs. Call or text me today at 704-707-5114, or you can email us at JaniceAllenJackson at gmail.com. We're here to help your organization find a better way. Follow Janice Allen Jackson and Associates on Twitter at this handle, J-A-J and Associate LLC. That's spelled J-A-J-A-N-D-A-S-S-O-C-L-L-C. What's going on, everybody? It's Knife Wonder right here, man. And you're checking out Making a Difference with my man Ken Macon. Keep it locked. Peace. I want to ask you just on top of, you know, since we're talking about the pandemic, because so much of what we're seeing in terms of media narratives is this almost, you know, uh, almost where it's an issue of personal responsibility, almost to the point of, you know, this respectability politics, you know, it's, well, black people need to eat better and, you know, just, you know, not really looking at or, or analyzing the fact that when you talk about the labor force, essential workers, so many of those workers by percentage are African-American. So much of you know, these outcomes, as you all have alluded to, is based on the fact that, you know, black folks have historically, you know, been boxed out, you know, of, you know, premium health care, um, you know, of, of wealth, different things like that. Just kind of give us a perspective of, you know, when you watch these things on TV and you, you know, maybe see them on social media, because I, I know it, it burns me up because I, I do have some idea of, you know, it's not just an issue of some black people like to eat fried foods. It's, it's deeper than that. It's, it's more insidious than that. Yeah, I think it's part and parcel of the general default option that people resort to in explaining why black folks do worse than white folks in the United States. And I like to uh, refer to this as the dysfunction, the, dis, the black dysfunction trope. Uh, and we actually talk about this at length in the second chapter of our book where we point out that people have a host of beliefs about black behavior that are absolutely inaccurate. And in fact, when black folks do the right thing, so to speak, uh, they don't necessarily get an outcome that gives them an equivalent position to whites. Uh, so for example, black Americans who are heads of households with a college degree have two thirds of the wealth of white heads of households who never finished high school. Uh, The wealth level of whites who are unemployed is higher than the wealth level of blacks who are working full time. Uh, Whites in the bottom 20% of the nation's income distribution have a higher median level of wealth than all black Americans taken together. Uh, So these are kinds of staggering differences that are associated with a situation in which uh, the black folks who do more than white folks are still worse off. So I think they they just tended to extend the same argument to try to explain the excess mortality that we observe. But as you're also pointing out, that excess mortality can be explained by the fact that blacks are in jobs that require greater exposure uh, to the uh, coronavirus because these are personal care, personal service jobs. And we also have jobs that uh, 
typically expose us to environments in which there are larger gatherings. Right. To the extent that those jobs get wiped out, it confronts black American workers with two options. Either lose your job altogether or continue to work into in a job where you're more likely uh, to face a greater risk of being exposed to the disease. It, it's not because black folks are making any stupider decisions than, say, the folks who are wearing MAGA hats who are claiming that the economy should be reopened. It's not, it's not because of that. It's because blacks start in a different position from white Americans on average, in a different position that places us in a more vulnerable setting in the context of a pandemic. Even before you open the book, you know, I'm looking at the cover, and the cover has a profound meaning as it's a picture of a memorial for lynching victims in this country. Um, why did you all choose that cover? So we um, we looked at, we had several several options that we were uh, considering, and you know, trying to figure out you know the tone that we wanted uh, to convey. But we took a trip in June to Montgomery and Birmingham, Alabama. And these are two cities we had not really explored, and we wanted to see some of the civil rights uh, sites there. And I have to say, it was a life-changing trip for us. Not only did we go to this memorial, we went to the lynching museum in Montgomery. We went to the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, which is where Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, his wife Coretta King lived. This is immediately after they got married. Or a white woman, 
or someone who was too, a black family that was too, that, that seemed too well to do, too prosperous to be allowed to continue, or um, someone who had, you know, who had, had managed to become elected to a public office. Just, just there are all kinds of reasons that you know seem to inspire these activities. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to add that at the lynching memorial, we typically think about these murders as acts where an individual black person is strung up and or burnt. But at the lynching memorial, there are a number of these hanging pillars where it just lists a huge number of individuals, like 237 or something like this. And we began to realize that these were memorializations of instances in which white terror campaigns had resulted in mass murders, massacres of black folks. And so that's part of what is represented at the the lynching memorial. And, And we thought it was a powerful testament to the historical violence that has been inflicted on black folks. And we think that that's a critical part of the story that we are trying to tell in From Here to Equality. And so it prompted us to have that uh, be the book cover image. Uh, I will note that on the audio book, we actually have a different image. Uh, We have an image that is uh, from the Washington, D.C. statue memorializing uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And we think that that's a powerful image as well because it includes on the side of the, the statue uh, a, the term hope. And, uh, and hope is very much closely allied with the dream that our people have had for 155 years of receiving compensation for the injustices that we've endured. Let me say, too, one of the most um, compelling arguments, too, you know, for reparations, almost without exception, uh, these lynchings were not, they were not, um, the, the perpetrators were not brought to trial, uh, or if they were brought to trial, the trials were summarily um, dismissed, and for the most part, absolutely no consequences came to the perpetrators of these crimes. And in Even if cases, they, they took over black-owned property, right, right. which was passed down to their descendants, right. some of whom still have that property to this day. As I say, and, and this despite the fact that there were frequently many witnesses to these crimes, but to know, you know their testimony uh, was not compelling enough to, you know, for any prosecutions. Uh, or for you know, for for many. I mean, there were there was a, there were there were some, but we're talking about probably fewer than you know five percent. Yeah. Maybe even less than that. Maybe even less than that. Yeah. Man, I was just you know taking all of this in and just hits really close for you know for us. Obviously, you know by virtue of just being African Americans, just being Black people. But I actually about two three years ago. Uh, there's a post-Civil War monument that's actually um, in North Augusta, which is about, from where we're doing the podcast, it's about 25, 30 minutes. And so there's this monument that is, in, it's the Meriwether Monument. It's actually a literal um, monument to white supremacy. It says, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it talks about uh, Thomas Meriwether. And it says that, you know, he died for the ideal of white supremacy. And so it was put up. And it was erected and paid for <laughs> by the state of South Carolina in the aftermath of the Hamburg massacre. And so I had actually gone to the city council in North Augusta and I said, well, you know, you guys got to do something with this monument. And my intent was to have it taken down entirely. And so, you know, I've been going back and forth with city officials there, you know, for the better part of I mean, two, seems like almost three years now. And some people were saying, well, you know, you should keep it up because, you know, hey, it's a it's a part of history. And and I'm and I'm saying, well, no, it's not. I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's a it's a, a gross misrepresentation of history. And I think that so much of that, you know, is what makes this book so important and so urgent is that you all are telling a story, like I said, uh, of historical accuracy, 
that also addresses just the social science, you know, of, of reparations and of how we teach Americans, you know, in public or private education. Um, and it's, it's done in a compelling way and it's done in a way that if people take heed to it, I think, you know, could be a game changer, could be revolutionary in a way of helping people to understand how black labor and how the subsequent suffering and look unpaid invoice for that labor um, I think it's just created so many of these conditions in in, uh, in America and what we're seeing now. Yeah, I think one of our objectives is to confront head on the lost cause narrative of reconstruction of the Civil War and just generally American racial history. I'll note that when we visited the, uh, well, I, I think we may have been one of the very few black couples to ever set foot in the uh, Confederate, first Confederate White House, but when we visited it, it's fascinating to discover that they described Jefferson Davis as, now this is literally in the language they use, an American patriot. Wow. So essentially what you've done is you've converted somebody who was a traitor to the Republic mm-hmm. into a heroic figure. And this is, this is part and parcel of the way in which the lost cause advocates have reconstructed the story of, uh, of America's racial history. And so one of our goals in the book is to, is, is to take on that, that construction uh, directly and, and refute it. It is, it is a set of lies and has to be, uh, has to be recognized as such. We'll be back after these messages. It's the West Coast Diva. Tell them, follow the leader. It's yo, yo. You're listening to Making the Difference with Ken Making. Do you need insurance for your car, home, life, or business? Then trust Jay Harvey, your Allstate insurance agent in Evans, Georgia. He opened his agency in 2017 because he loves helping and working with people. As a husband and father, he understands the importance of helping families prepare for the unexpected. You can get a personalized insurance quote today by calling 706-434-8106. Jay's office is located at 3118-8 William Few Parkway in Evans, Georgia. Remember, you're in good hands with Jay Harvey, your neighborhood Allstate insurance agent. Hey, y'all. We're going to get back to the show in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about my good friends over at Quick Print Augusta. I want to tell you about some of the services they provide. They do family reunion t-shirts, political flyers, logo designs, church programs, church fans, brochures, business cards, and banners. So if you need any of those things, and I'm pretty sure you do, give them a call at 706-750-9779. That's 706-750-9779. You can also shoot them an email at info at quickprintaugusta.com. Info at quickprintaugusta.com. You can also hit them up on Facebook at quickprintaugusta. But wait, there's more. If you mention making a difference to the good folks at Quick Print Augusta, they will give you 10% off of your order. Again, if you mention MAD, making a difference, they'll give you 10% off. Enjoy the rest of the show. I want to talk about the book because the book is broken up in six parts. And at the end of the book, there's a program of black reparations. Jerome and I, we were talking and we we're actually tempted to just read the end of the book. Well, before you, um, <laughs> before you finish, Kenny, I have to, <laughs> I have to um, confess that I, I couldn't wait. <laughs> I ended up, um, Dr. Darity, uh, Ms. Mullen, please forgive me. I ended up, I, I think I read, I listened to the first three chapters. And then when I realized um, that there was a solutions portion, I, I skipped ahead. So please don't judge me. <laughs> I was just so excited about it. And Kitten, excuse me if I may. No, you're fine. Um, one of the things that I found so fascinating about the solutions chapter, and and let me know if I'm overstepping, it, it took me to a place of thinking about political will. Because here you have this book that is rich of American history, because it is all our history. And you also have an opportunity to explore solutions. But the political will is what is really needed in order to get those solutions implemented. And I just think it was, um, and and I just wanted to talk to you both, because I know that there have been instances where you all have had opportunities, you know, and I'm not asking you to get into specifics about um, the opportunities that you had to talk to maybe some of the people on the campaign trail. And I know that there have been, just by reading different articles or whatnot, um, or uh, political figures that have reached out to you all for your advice, 
what is your what is the overall sense that you get when we start thinking about this from a political will perspective? Is it a sense of the reason why we won't we, we don't see politicians fighting harder to get reparations passed? Is it a sense of fear of backlash from, from some of their donor base or is it a situation where they just are indifferent to fighting for things like this? And I'm I'm just curious to know what's your experience been with that? Because I think about the fact that H.R. 40 has been sitting with Congress um, since John Conyers was, um, what, in the 80s, I want to say? And here we are in how many times? Yeah, okay. So how many times have we had a Democratic-controlled House, at least, you know, including this last session, and you don't even get a vote on it, you know? So I'm just curious, what's, what's the overall sentiment that you gather just from dealing with some of these people? is the historical component in terms of, you know, from slavery to Reconstruction to Jim Crow to the war on drugs to the present day? How important is understanding, you know, just American history as it relates to that program that you all present at the end of the book? that was new to us. 
I know for myself, I certainly was not taught history in such a way that the context of the facts and the dates and the places and the names that I was uh, memorizing, that was not made clear to me. No one talked about what would have happened if black people had gotten those, at those 40 acres. Nobody talked about that in school when I was a kid. Um, you know, what the consequences would be. You know, there was so little conversation at all about the civil rights movement, uh, so little discussion about even slavery, aside from we picked cotton and we were happy to do so. You know, that was really the message that came across. Although, you know, I do remember looking at those pictures of black people and thinking, they don't, they don't look like they're having fun. <laughs> right. You know, but, but that was, you know, but you know, nobody was, was questioning, you know, this received wisdom. You know, we are hopeful that um, when, you know, readers examine what we have, uh, you know, the information that we put forth and, 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 and go to the sources yourself. You know, we, we try to put a lot of the primary sources, you know, in the notes for the book. You know, don't don't take our word for it. You know, go and, and read for yourself. Do more, you know, do more investigations. And we hope that they will be persuaded. That's good. I want to ask you all about uh, an acronym that you highlight very early. It's ARC. It's kind of funny because there's actually a, a high school uh, in the area that uh, has the same initials. Um, <laughs> but ARC, it stands for Acknowledgement, Redress, and Closure. Uh, can you break down each of those aspects of your reparations proposal and why each of them are so important? Yeah, and, and also uh, I'd like to credit a literature professor at MIT named Sandy Alexander for uh, recognizing that acknowledgement, redress, and closure did form the acronym mark because we didn't realize that. <laughs> but it, it fits very nicely with tropes like uh, the arc of justice. So, so acknowledgement constitutes a, uh, a recognition on the part of the culpable party that they have committed an atrocity or a set of atrocities and that they have benefited from those atrocities. Redress is restitution for the harms that have been inflicted upon the community that was victimized by the actions of the culpable party. And closure is the, uh, the recognition on the part of the victims and the culpable party that the debt has been paid. And furthermore, that the victimized community will not make any further claims for those atrocities unless there's a repetition of the atrocities or a new wave of atrocities takes place. But closure is important. It's, it means that there's a, uh, an agreement that the debt has actually been met. Um, another part of uh, the plan that we articulate is it includes a, an extensive education program. All too easily, we forget what we know. And um, so we would like to see an education program that stretches at least across three generations so that we won't fall, fall prey to these uh, sort of dismemory exercises where, you know, we don't know how we got to here, you know, where slavery is not included, uh, slavery is not even mentioned as a reason for, a reason why the Civil War was fought when in fact one southern state after another in its uh, secession of declarations cites slavery as the reason why they were fighting, cites, cites slavery as their life's blood, you know, what was, what was enabling them to um, acquire and sustain the livelihoods and the standard of living that they were so addicted to. And yet, you know, 30, 40 years later, they were denying that slavery was even a consideration for, um, you know, engaging in the war. You know, as we talked about slavery, I want to ask you about just the chapter seven mystic years. That's just something that really grabbed my attention because it is about reconstruction. Obviously an important point in American history for black people. And in turn, it's uh, such a forgotten um, piece of history. Why, why do you think it's uh, that's the case? Well, I think it's a distorted piece of history uh, simultaneous with uh, kind of repressing it. 
and it's distorted insofar as the, the major story people frequently hear about Reconstruction is that uh, it was a period where blacks had some political influence and uh, as, as, as folks are wont to say who are uh, in the white supremacist camp, the Negro rule to ruin that these, uh, these uh, black-dominated Southern legislatures uh, were corrupt and were inefficient and uh, produced uh, outrageous pieces of legislation. When in fact, I mean, the record shows that it was those Reconstruction era legislatures that introduced universal schooling in the southern states, the use of public expenditures for the purposes of infrastructure development, particularly roads and highways, bridges and the like, that actually the Reconstruction era legislatures were quite transformative. And they were no more corrupt than white-dominated legislators <laughs> <laughs> had been throughout the South. So, so I, again, I think that the way in which Reconstruction is characterized or silenced is part and parcel of the lost cause narrative. And, and that's, uh, that's such a fundamental way in which, which the, the, the teaching of American history has been infected that we, uh, we, we thought that talking about the Reconstruction era was critical. It's a crossroads. It's another key crossroads point where if it had gone differently, if Reconstruction had truly been Reconstruction, then we may not be having this conversation about the need for reparations today. And the, other, the other aspect of this that we haven't talked about is you know, the role of media. I'm thinking in particular of Hollywood in shaping uh, the country's understanding of what happened during the period of enslavement and during Reconstruction. You know, you had, with the advent of the uh, movies, two films back-to-back, Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind, that sadly formed, you know, are the base of a lot of people's quote-unquote understanding of American history. You know, people take what they see, you know, what, what they saw on the screen as fact. And it's, it's, it's an abomination, really. When you look at the antecedents for both of those, you know, both of those pieces of entertainment, history is kind of a, a bystander. But, but that is exactly what a lot of people think about when they imagine, you know, the antebellum South. And, um, and, and Birth of Nation in particular has these really, really, horrendous scenes of uh, black legislative bodies. They are, you know, they're, they're dressed uh, in kind of cartoonish ways and they're, they're eating, they've got their feet up on the desks. In, bare feet. Their bare feet up on the desk and the, and the halls, of, you know, the halls of law and, they, and they're, they're eating chicken and, and watermelons. And, and I think a lot of people you know, this kind of went with this whole notion of the, 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 the carpetbaggers and the scalawags stealing our democracy from us. You know, this is what happens when you let black people, you know, take office. Uh, they're, they're unfit for, they're unfit to serve, and, and what else would you expect? And it became the basis for the violent overthrow of elected officials. Yes. Uh, which is precisely what happened to, to eliminate uh, Reconstruction. I want to ask you all, and man, I've so enjoyed this conversation, man. I've, you know, counted a blessing, and like I said, just appreciate Jerome once again for helping to to organize this. But I want to ask you guys, and it may be too soon, um, but in your mind, what do you think will be the legacy of this book, and how can this book be shared in a way uh, that changes not only the minds of Americans, but how can we educate Americans? You know, when we talk about you know public education, private ed- education. How can we educate Americans in those fields and beyond? Well, on the educational side, and, and I'm sure Kirsten has some additional thoughts on this, because uh, she's much more creative in thinking about how we can uh, we can enlighten folks, or hopefully enlighten. Them. Uh, but on the education side, we hope that the book could at least spin off a documentary film maybe two, maybe a documentary film that communicates more readily to younger viewers. 
we hope that there might be a spinoff, not necessarily that we write of the book, that might be more uh, accessible for younger readers. Uh, I think Ibram Kendi has co-authored a version of, of his book, Stamped from the Beginning, that is intended for adolescent readers. Okay. And so uh, I think that the, the more ways in which the message of this book can be generated in other formats or in other media, you know, I mean, we think, it, we think it's wonderful that you've given us the opportunity to talk on, on your program, because there's going to be another community of people who will hear the conversation that we're having tonight. But uh, to the extent that we can spread the word in some sense, that then then that that would be a positive legacy from this book. I mean, I guess the highest dream that the book is uh, is a, is a major element of the movement to actually fulfill the objective of receiving reparations. But but short of that, we just hope that the book can have an influence on increasing the awareness that people have of the historical record and of the practicality of actually implementing a reparations program. Hey, hey, Doc, I can see the Dirty Moan Act of 2022 doing some big things, man. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can envision it. I, I had a couple of comments to add to that, too. I, I definitely would like uh, to see, if, if, if we don't do it, and maybe we will, a children's version of the book. But also want to encourage study groups. Several, several people have let us know that they are using the book in their book clubs or their library is forming uh, a study group. We understand that some cities are choosing to make the book, like some cities have a, a one city, one book community read, um, which is another way to, to you know, get more people involved in the conversation, um, to have speakers perhaps talk on different facets of the book. There is a group in our town in Durham, North Carolina, that has come together to create a coalition of cities, uh, municipalities, but also county governments and other governments, but also cultural institutions and communities of faith to form a coalition that will petition Congress to pass H.R. 40 and to enact a program of reparations. This is an extraordinary moment, I think, when cities, city government, this is our, our, our mayor, Steve, uh, Steve Schull, who has asked uh, the city council members to join him uh, and, and be at the front of this movement, of this coalition. That, I think, is a tremendously positive, you know, positive sign. If they do pass it, they need to make sure they consult with you guys because the, um, the current version of it needs some work. I think <laughs> they need to really have a conversation with you guys before they actually pass it. That is the legislation, but so yes. if if from here, we can, we can talk about that. Yeah. So just yes, we have I just, thoughts about that. <laughs> so I just want to ask one more question before um, you know we we close out. And if from here to equality is the main course, what are some uh, sides, if you will, of, of books that you would recommend people also read to go with the information um, in your book? One book in particular comes to mind. And, it's, it's, uh, I can't remember the guy that wrote it, but it was called um, The Half Have Never Been Told, I think is the name of the book. Yes. Edward Edward yeah, yeah, yeah. So books like that come to mind, just for an example. So if you were, you know, just pretty much trying to encourage people to get a full-blown comprehensive education. So it's got to be Black Reconstruction. Reconstruction. Yeah. 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 And W.E.B. And W.E.B. And W.E.B. Uh, his, 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 his biography, his biography, yeah. would be an excellent his slave, one. His slave yeah, yeah. But, but Du Bois's Black Reconstruction is absolutely vital because it was the first major, major effort to confront the lost cause narrative. And it's an absolutely brilliant book. There are some things that I would say I'm critical about in the book, but that's one of the giant accomplishments of the 20th century. So people should read that. Mary uh, Frances Berry's My Face is Black is True. Yes, on Callie House. About Callie House. Uh, then, uh, uh, Dana, uh, Dinah Ramey Berry's book, which is called... Uh, what's Black Down. The, 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 
their pound the of pound flesh, flesh, their pound of yeah. flesh. Then there's Stephanie Jones Rogers' book, They Were Her Property. These mm. are both fairly recent books, mm-hmm. but they're uh, they're very they're very valuable. Okay. Uh, and then maybe Elizabeth Frank's book called Repair yes. would be yes. would be useful to look at. So, Empire of Cotton. Ben oh, Becker's book. Ben book, yeah. It's Empire of Cotton is excellent. So. And Dick America's book. So the old, old book by, edited by Richard F. America called The Wealth of Races, which is the book that in some ways got me, or I actually did get me on the path to really thinking seriously about reparations. Uh, that's a book that's worth, worth looking at as well. Okay. So we got... Uh, Dr. Derry and Miss Mullins um, bookshelf for the, the evening. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man, I'm just like I said. I'm just actually a little bit overwhelmed, man. Just really, uh, really glad to have this conversation. Again, the co-authors of From Here to Equality. Uh, it's available via audio book. I'm more of a traditional, you know, kind of flip through the pages. So I got a copy uh, that's on the way. It's on its way to the house now, man. And uh, so glad to have you both, Dr. Darity. Uh, Miss Mullen, so glad to have you guys be a part of the Making a Difference experience. Same with my good friend and, like I say, childhood friend and brother, Jerome Ferguson. So glad you all could join us. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having us. The revolution will not be televised. You see, a lot of times people see, 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 see battles and skirmishes on TV and they say, aha, the revolution is being televised. Nah, the results of the revolution are being televised. The first revolution is when you change your mind about how you look at things and see that there might be another way to look at it that you have not been shown. What you see later on is the results of that, but the revolution, that change that takes place, will not be televised.